I'm all for the rainbow, but I take it probably one step further. And I recommend that people have something from each of the six plant-based food groups in their diet. Most days, if not all days, I call them the super six because each bacteria, just like us, has different taste preferences. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Brunswick, Georgia, Clear Lake, California, and Nairobi, Kenya. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 65 of season 5, number 364 overall. Variety is the spice of life, and as it turns out, variety is also the key to good health. Dr. Megan Rossi is here today talking all about getting more plants into your diet and getting more health into your life. Now, her goal is for you to eat 30 different plants every single week. And while 30 is a really high number, it's actually a lot easier to do than you might imagine. We're also going to be talking about her super six food groups and what happens when one or two of those groups are missing from your diet. And that's actually really common with a lot of popular diets that are out there. So what happens if you're not getting everything you need? But if you are able to hit all six plant food groups on the regular, we're also going to discuss how quickly you might see your health begin to improve. And we're talking about health all over. We're talking better sleep and stronger immune system, lower risk of diseases, even better mental health. So we're talking about feeling good top to bottom. But the conversation doesn't really stop there. We're going to get a little bit nerdy as well. We're going to talk about how your body digests meat differently than it does plant foods. We're going to chat about this study that shows that your risk for heart disease goes up by, get this, more than 20% with every serving of red meat that you eat every day. And that has to do with the chemicals that the gut produces when you eat that meat. Very interesting research there. And speaking of research, Dr. Rossi is actually a research fellow at King's College at London. She also has the Gut Health Clinic. She's an author. You may have read her previous books, including Love Your Gut. But we will be talking about her latest book here today, How to Eat More Plants and Transform Your Health with 30 Plant-Based Foods Per Week and Why It's Easier Than You Would Think. So let's find out how to do that right now. Dr. Megan Rossi on the exam room. Thank you so very much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. How are things going with you? I know we have a mutual friend in Will Bolsowitz, and when he just released the Fiber Field Cookbook, it was a whirlwind of appearances and Instagram lives and just commitments to get this book on store shelves and get that in front of people. How are you dealing with this? Because I'm sure your plate is ultra full right now. Yeah, look, it's it's a lot, um, but I love it. You know, when you've got a message that, you know, can improve people's lives in, in very real and often surprising ways, it just keeps, you know, sparing you on to do the TV and do the lives and do the podcast because I know that, you know, it has the potential to help millions of people. So it's that motivation that continues to uh, get me through with not that much sleep, um, which my gut microbes aren't overly happy with. <laughs> Are, can gut microbes be affected by sleep? We we always think about what it is that you're eating, but sleep plays a role there too, huh? Absolutely. So we know that like humans, we've got our own circadian rhythm. So do our gut microbes. So that's the sleep-wake cycle. And the studies have shown that after just two days of not getting enough sleep, so sleep deprivation, actually it changes your gut microbes despite being on, on the same diet. Um, so that's actually something I focus on in, in the first book, Love You Gut, the four pillars of gut health. So yes, obviously we know diet's really important, but so is getting enough sleep. So I've got a sleeper questionnaire in the, in the first book, which helps you get an idea of your sleep quality. And then I get um, 
one of my researchers actually at King's College in London shared with me this sleep protocol that she actually used in a clinical trial that showed it significantly improved people's sleep quality and duration compared to the other control group that just got told to sleep more. So she let me put that in the book to help people really, you know, maximize their sleep and in turn improve their gut health that way. Then obviously there is the movement uh, element. We know that's equally um, important as you sleep in terms of supporting that gut bacterial community and really helping them thrive. Uh, and then also there's stress. That's the fourth pillar. We know that so many of us, you know, myself included at times, can get stressed. And that strangulation up here leads to strangulation of your gut and your gut microbes don't like that either. So again, in Love Your Gut, I've got a stress questionnaire where you can scale yourself as well as uh, one of my colleagues, um, uh, Kimberly Wilson, who's a psychologist, actually shared uh, some of her favorite types of, you know, 10 minute strategies to help reduce stress and in turn calm down the gut there. So yeah, it's all about those four elements. Despite, you know, people having a perfect gut boosting diet, if you're not focusing on the other areas, you just can't really get optimal gut health. Ooh, okay. So I'm learning something new today. All right. So I definitely could use some help with the sleep uh, and, and stress. Um, that's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to follow those tips. I'm going to get me a good night's sleep. Uh, was not really expecting to talk about that at the top of the interview, but here we are. Um, let's talk about nutrition though, and focus on that. That is the primary focus of the exam room. After all, the exam room is all about diet. They love they love, they love, they love to learn about this stuff. Now, in your book, How to Eat More Plants, okay, you encourage people to eat 30 or more plants every single week. You hear the number 30. Initially, that seems like an awful lot, but your message in the book is you can get to 30 without much effort at all. It really is much easier than what people think. In fact, the, the menu plans in the book, whether it's the one for family feasting or for busy people, all of them contain over 70 plant points each and every week. Now, the important thing to highlight, it doesn't take extra time or extra cost. You know, I want to make sure that this is a really accessible way to achieve maximum gut health. It's things like, you know, at the grocery store, instead of just getting the pumpkin seeds, get the three seed mix. Instead of just getting your chickpeas, you get the three bean mix, as long as it's obviously not in salt or vinegar, it's just in, in the water. Um, and those sorts of things, instead of just broccoli, get the stir fry mix. So whenever you go to the store, think diversity. Now, this magic number 30 stemmed from a, uh, a trial um, undertaken in the US uh, from, you know, it's amazing colleagues of mine. And they showed that, yes, people who eat at least 30 different types of plants a week have better gut health than those who eat the same 10 on repeat. And I think if we think about our own diets, often we do fall into habitual buying the same foods, cooking the same meals. Um, but the science is, is really highlighting this element of diversity is incredibly important because of these phytochemicals. So we know that we all, um, you know, need, you know, the key uh, micronutrients in our diets, about 20 plus of them. But there is tens of thousands of these phytochemicals, which are within plants. And each different type of plant provides different phytochemicals. Now, the thing about these phytochemicals is that our bacteria absolutely love them. And when we feed our body these phytochemicals, the bacteria thrive. They're better at producing um, different vitamins, regulating hormones, communicating with our brain, impacting our blood sugar regulation. All of those things that bacteria do are enhanced when we feed them that diversity of those phytochemicals. So that's the science behind why we're trying to get at least 30. And in, in the book, I've um, come up with this plant point system, which stemmed from that, that, um, that trial showing about the 30. But then I've just added on to my clinical experience in terms of, you know, giving different, so for example, herbs and spices just get a quarter of a point. Um, but if you eat, you know, an example, if you eat 20 strawberries, you only get one point. Whereas if you eat 10 strawberries and a banana and some quinoa, you get three points. So each different type, you get a new point. Ooh, so you've kind of turned it into a game. That sounds like fun. Yeah, look, you know, the reason I did that is because, you know, I've been a clinician for the past 15 years. I know that we love counting things. Um, but what we see is counting things like calories just doesn't achieve the long term results that people deserve. Um, so I've kind of turned it into a way we can count plants instead. Uh, and it's a really fun way, I think, to engage with the, you know, thousands of different plant species out there that a lot of us, you know, may have seen in the shops, but aren't that 
you know, comfortable with cooking, for example. So, you know, one of the sections in the book is the meat, the legumes, and then meat, the whole grains. And what I've done is introduced eight really, you know, incredibly healthy types of whole grains and legumes, which are available from most mainstream supermarkets. You don't need to go to these expensive health food stores. So you can get them accessibly, but I tell you, you know, what dishes you can switch them in for, you know, what are the key nutrients in them? You know, what do they taste like? So you feel a little bit more comfortable with exploring these types of um, different legumes and whole grains that you might not have had on your menu very regularly. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm visualizing the foods that you're naming. You just rattled off the fruits. So you, you said banana, that's yellow, strawberry, that's red, kiwi, that's green. Then you've got the beans and the legumes and the, and the grains. So like brown and black and that uh, maybe red. So um, it sounds to me like you're kind of describing also the importance of eating the rainbow, as we say. So are you of the mindset like you have to have a lot of different colors on your plate to make sure that you're getting everything? Yeah, look, I'm all for the rainbow, but I take it probably one step further. And I recommend that people have something from each of the six plant-based food groups in their diet most days, if not all days. Um, and I call them the super six. So you've got your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, and your herbs and your spices. Now, each different category actually provides your gut bacteria and therefore your body with different types of phytochemicals. Um, and that's why we see some of these diets where, you know, for example, keto and paleo, where they're cutting out one of these beneficial plant-based food groups, the science has shown actually reduces down some of their beneficial gut bacteria because each bacteria, just like us, has different taste preferences. So if we're feeding our gut bacteria just or veg and aren't getting any legumes in, then we don't get to grow the legume-loving microbes, i.e. bacteria, that we know can do an array of, of things to benefit our body. So that's, you know, my, my goal for people is to think across the day, have I gotten something from each of the super six? Um, and if they haven't, you might think about, you know, some ways to, to sneak them in. You know, in the book, I, I've got, you know, plenty of recipes, 80 plus recipes. And I talk about things like, you know, on a, in a smoothie, put in some um, frozen cauliflower, you know, it actually blends and makes it so creamy and you can't even taste the cauliflower. So if you've got someone who's not that into plants and you want to slowly change their taste buds, which is actually a science-backed thing because we've got microbes in our mouth and they start to adapt and help us crave plants the more we eat, doing things like that can really help get the whole family on board eating more plants. That's awesome. I sneak, uh, I love sneaking plant foods in for people um, who, who, who aren't, uh, you know, vegan and, and certainly are kind of eating that standard Western diet. Um, for example, they love, they love, they love certain members of my family love this chocolate shake uh, that I make, but they don't know that I put black beans in the chocolate shake. That. They just think it's great, right? Like, are you going to go to McDonald's, order a chocolate shake and get black beans in that? Doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love I love that you do that because I'm so, so passionate about that where, you know, a lot of people, you know, think just get turned off if it's a legume or if it's a plant They're like, oh, yuck, I don't like it. And they don't let themselves enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? Because the psychologically, they've been taught that it's a yucky thing often from childhood. Yeah. But plants can taste absolutely amazing. And if you think about you know, animal foods, you know, anything can taste bad if it's not cooked right, like a steak, if it's burnt the hell out and all gross, like people, you know, people who love meat won't like that. The same with veg. I think we just haven't really been taught how to cook the foundations and make veg taste delicious. And again, hopefully that's what people can get from how to eat more plants. And we're talking about getting to 30 plants per week. Do you have an idea on average what the standard person is eating in terms of the volume of plants? Yeah, look, it's probably around 10. Um, wow. Certainly what I see, uh, you know, from from clinic. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> a lot we can do. And it's like I said, just small little tweaks. Um, so hopefully, it's something very achievable for everyone. And, you know, I do have these resources in the book that people print out um, and put on their fridge. And it gets me so excited when I see people completing them, particularly with kids, where they start, you know, tallying, the, the super six and count up how many you know plants they've had across the week and set themselves a little goal and and go okay next week I'm going to add an extra one or two plants on and you know that sort of setting yourself those goals and targets can really help people uh, achieve the goal and after about four weeks 
people report feeling and even looking so much better. All right. So four weeks, that's when they start to feel it. But how quickly internally do those benefits start to kick in? I would imagine it's sooner than that even. Absolutely. So we know from the David paper that actually our microbes can change within two or so days um, of, from how we feed. If we go from extreme diet, so that the study showed from you know, meat only diet to plants only, um, and they showed two days their microbes started to change. But of course, you know, that's just small changes. We see more advanced changes on things like the, um, the chemicals that the bacteria are producing and the actual, you know, change in the whole profile probably does take a few more weeks than that to kick in. So you just mentioned the word chemicals, and that makes me think of this study that was just released not too terribly long ago, um, showed that the, when you eat red meat, the gut microbes uh, produce these chemicals that increase the risk for heart disease. I believe it's like 22% per serving per day. I mean, that's a pretty extraordinary connection there and a pretty high uh, increase there for every piece of red meat. Um how does the body break that down differently, the red meat versus plants? Like, is the digestive process different or is it just you are producing different chemicals? What's what's the difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great, great point. And, you know, just to add to that, I think it was, um, well, the World Health Organization 2015 actually did say that processed meats are a carcinogen, i.e. cancer causing, like they've made that as a ruling. And just recently, uh, the French government have reviewed that um, and also support that. So in all of their, you know, guidelines, they're trying to reduce down a lot of these processed meats. Um, but in terms of red meat, so yeah, this is a really good point. So in terms of what's in it, it's protein, essentially these animal types of protein. We also know, obviously there's, there's plant protein as well. Um, so when we think about our gut, this nine meter long digestive tube, essentially, and there's four parts to it. We've got our food pipe, i.e. our esophagus. We've got our stomach, which is like a washing machine, chucks the food around, cleans it with detergents and acids. Um, and then once it gets to like a puree consistency, it makes its way to the third part of the intestine called the small intestine, which is a weird name because it's like six meters long. So certainly not small by size. <laughs> but in the small intestine is where most of the nutrients, i.e. the proteins, get broken down into these things called amino acids, which is the building blocks, and gets from our gut into the blood system. Uh, and then that gets to feed our muscles, our skin, our hair, etc. Um, so, and then, sorry, the fourth and final part is the large intestine. So that is where we have those trillions of gut bacteria. Now, anything in the small intestine that doesn't get digested makes its way into the large intestine and the bacteria ferment it. Now, we know the, the thing about plants is it's full of fiber. Now, fiber actually humans can't digest. We don't have the enzymes to digest it. So it travels through the small intestine undigested and makes its way to the final part where the bacteria uniquely have the enzymes to break down that fiber and in turn produce a range of beneficial chemicals. Now, the thing about red meat is that when we eat red meat, often actually we malabsorb a little bit of it. So it doesn't it doesn't all get absorbed in that small intestine. It makes its way to the large intestine. And when the, the bacteria are faced with animal protein, they, they ferment it in a way that produces some potentially toxic metabolites like trimethylamine oxide, um, another uh, chemical that's been associated as a risk factor for, for cardiac heart disease. Um, so what we're seeing is that when bacteria ferment the animal protein, they're producing kind of negative profiles of, of chemicals, but also promote the growth of some potentially um, troublesome bacteria. Compared when the bacteria eat the fiber, they produce beneficial chemicals and it supports the growth of anti-inflammatory types of bacteria. So in terms of, I guess, the mechanism of red meat, a lot of it comes down to the bacteria producing potentially negative compounds. And there's also some research uh, looking at the heme iron, so the, the meat iron, Again, some of that gets malabsorbed and the bacteria do negative things with that heme iron as well. And we think produce some of these potentially carcinogenic uh, compounds. Um, so, yeah, it, it really is a fascinating area. In fact, in my PhD, we looked at things like the, 
the protein to fiber ratio and showed that increasing the amount of uh, fiber reduced down the amount of uh, protein fermentation that could occur because when the bacteria face with both protein and fiber, they can always go the fiber, right? Um, so if you can up the fiber, then that's going to reduce down that, that bacterial fermentation of, of the protein. I had no idea that fiber wasn't really digested until it reached the large intestine. I love this show because you just learn something new every single day. Little things like that, they just blow my mind. Had no idea. Thank you. That's why fiber is so, so beneficial. And I think, you know, it's a new thing. I mean, we've known that people eat more fiber, always have lived longer, are happier, you know, have better skin but a hormone control, et cetera, we never really understood the mechanism. Um, we initially thought fiber just made you poop better and maybe that made you feel better and that's why. <laughs> um, but it's through the, you know, the technology that's allowed us to understand the bacterial component of our body where we've discovered that actually, yeah, we don't digest the fiber. We can't. We don't have the enzymes. It's the bacteria. And they produce these things called short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, which strengthen the gut lining, um, and other types of um, organic acids, which can some of them can pass up blood-brain barrier and impact things like our mental health. So, yeah, it really is, I guess, this new understanding of why plants are beneficial, that mechanism that's been missing. And I'm so passionate about people understanding that mechanism because it kind of makes plants sexy again, right? People go, oh, you know, instead of the government just slamming down, eat more plants, eat more fiber, when you understand a mechanism, I think people are more likely to jump on board it and be like, oh yeah, now I get why I'm doing this. And the more you start to include it, then your taste buds change and then you're really on board with this way of eating. You are super passionate about it. Like you can't hide that passion. Um, Like when you were a little girl, right? So like little five-year-old, six-year-old, like were, were you, you know, envisioning like getting so giddy over the digestive <laughs> process did you always want to go this route yeah look i mean i actually grew up on a farm in australia a very small town um so you may have picked up i'm australian actually i actually after finishing my phd at the university of queensland i uh moved over to work as a research fellow at king's because they were doing really impressive gut health research um so yeah i've come from a very small you know town farm lifestyle where good gut health was inherent to my upbringing, you know, eating fresh fruit and veg, playing in the dirt, all that sort of stuff. But certainly uh, didn't think that I would ever be into gut health. And it wasn't until actually um, I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics when I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And that was my first actual conscious encounter of the gut. So I, it was quite a negative one. I hated the gut. I was like, because my grandma had a big part of my upbringing. I was like, God, like, how could you have done this like, through the, the chemo, the surgery, all that sort of stuff, and obviously taking your life. But then I started working um, in the hospital setting with people who had either, you know, different types of cancers, kidney disease, mental health issues. But also I was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team and found that the girls with the most performance anxiety also had the most number of gut issues. So these two worlds are very different, you know, people. I was saying, God, everyone was being affected by the gut and this organ was haunting me. So that's when I decided to embark on a PhD because I was like, I want to I wanna understand it more. I owe it to my grandma and to my patients and clients. And, and it was really that PhD that transformed everything. It was like, oh, okay, so the gut is actually hugely powerful. It just misunderstood. And I can improve people's lives in very real and often surprising ways by targeting the gut. And that's when I knew the rest of my career I wanted to dedicate uh, to gut health. So this is a personal thing for you. Like that, that makes you all the more passionate, I would I would think. Um, and and again, like it's not just passion, that passion breeds excitement. And I I it sounds to me like you love research so much that you're always curious and you have this this insatiable appetite, this thirst for knowledge um, that you just love keep learning and learning and learning. That's kind of the vibe that you're giving off. Is that right? I mean, absolutely. I, I think I had an inquisitive mindset from day dot. My mom was a science teacher. Um, I was always asking. I was always that annoying person in class. I was like, but why? <laughs> why is that? And I just, I find it so exciting when you can understand how you can make yourself feel better, live longer, and, you know, be happier. And I just see so many people, you know, in clinic, on social media, who are struggling so much. And I know if we can get this message to them, 
can transform their lives. Like I get so many really special and amazing messages from people who've, you know, read the books or I've seen in clinic and they're like, you know, life will never be the same. This is this is game change. And I just, yeah, I, I get such a buzz from that that I just want to like share it with everyone, try everyone to kind of make them help themselves, empower them essentially and inspire them to feel better. You know what I've learned uh, doing this show and, and interviewing you and, and Dr. Will Bolsowitz and other gastroenterologists is just how powerful that connection is between the gut and virtually like every other part of the body, but specifically uh, the brain also, right? So that gut brain connection is really, really, really super strong. Um, and I know that that's also something that you, you, you've talked about in the past and, and in this book, like talk to us about that connection. And even to the extent like, how somebody with a healthier gut uh, microbiome there, a healthier gut uh, is less likely to have something like depression and anxiety. I believe I've seen studies there as well. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that I was really passionate about getting into how to eat more plants is, yes, it's got all the recipes and the practical elements of it. But I talk about, you know, these five different axes. So the gut brain axis, the gut skin axis, the gut hormone axis, the gut metabolism axis and the gut immune axis. And this axis is just, you know, the fancy word that describes that two way communication that occurs because the science is now so strong to highlight that our gut really can impact in a very strong and real way those five other elements. But like you you highlighted, the gut-brain axis is a really exciting one. So some of my colleagues actually in Australia did a landmark study called the SMILES trial. So anyone who's into the science may have heard of the SMILES trial before, but I talk about more in the book. And, you know, for me, it was the first time where I actually, you know, obviously in clinic, I saw quite impressive results by targeting people's diet on their mental health. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, you know, people coming off antidepressants and, and all that sort of stuff. But it was the first time where there was a robust clinical trial to back up what I was seeing in clinical practice, where they randomized people with moderate to severe depression. Half of them got this gut boosting diet. And, you know, that's essentially, you know, the diversity diet, which I talk about in the book. And the second one uh, was this befriending type of counseling. Now, both groups followed the intervention for 12 weeks, either the diet or the counseling, and they came back and they reassessed their mental health using these questionnaires um, that we use in clinical practice. And what they found in the diet group, 32% of them had a significant improvement in their depression scores, which would have classified them as no longer clinically depressed, versus the control group, that was only 8%. And I just find that so striking that that was just 12 weeks and, you know, 32% of them no longer classified as depressed from, mm. from those dietary changes. Now, it is really important that I do highlight that everyone in the trial in a very controlled way stayed on their antidepressant medications because they all had moderate severe, you know, clinical depression. So if anyone's listening to this who does have depression, certainly don't just stop your medications. But I want you to feel empowered that by really trying to boost up the diversity of plants in your diet and nourishing your gut bacteria you can really make a, a clinically relevant improvement in your mental health. And, you know, mental health is very complex. So is depression. Um, so not for everyone, but like studies like this highlight, and certainly what I see in clinic, some people, we can actually get them off the antidepressant medications with the support of their psychiatrist, if that's what they would like. And that's kind of what they're ready for when their gut health has that improvement. Uh, I actually know about that firsthand. I was put on antidepressants when I was in the sixth or seventh grade and uh, just woefully depressed basically yeah. uh, for many, many, many years. And um, I saw some very significant improvement uh, once I began eating a plant-based diet, even after, you know, I had lost a lot of weight uh, before going plant-based, like I, I still kind of suffered from that. And it wasn't even on my radar that there would be a connection between my diet and depression. Um, but sure enough, there was market improvement there. And I'm no, I'm not saying that it's perfect, just as you said, but compared to what it was, I mean, we are talking about, I would say at least a 70% um, decline in depressive episodes, right? So it's just like, I'm a, I'm a happier individual, um, certainly healthier and, um, probably the 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 old gut brain axis there had a lot to do with this huh absolutely well done to you i mean that that's amazing i love hearing these stories like it you know it's so powerful to share them and so other people can really experience that and you know i do talk about case studies in the book so people can relate and know that actually real people are having these benefits right um i will just 
add to plant-based if you um are 100% plant-based I do recommend particularly for your mental health um, that people have an algae oil supplement because we know that you can get omega-3 um, from animal sources like chia seeds, tofu, uh, walnuts, etc. But it's the shorter chain omega-3 and what we see is optimal for mental health is a longer chain. So algae oil is unique in terms of the only type of plant um, that actually has those longer chain omega-3. So definitely worth investigating that. And you know, I do talk a few, about a few other supplements um, or nutrients that are worth like really focusing on to making sure you're really giving the body that maximal chance because I've got a lot of omega-3s in the brain so we need to make sure that that is um well supplied for our for our mental health um but yeah I mean in terms of of that gut brain axis some people I don't know if we if you want me to go into it now but you know people are a bit skeptical they're like well just wait your, your brain's kind of in the skull and you're your bacteria in a very different part of your body, how are they really communicating? Um, and, you know, there is essentially three key ways or pathways. So anyone who likes these mechanisms, shall I share them, Chuck? Oh, by all means, you're yeah. on a roll. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> Sometimes, I, you know, some people love knowing about the science. Other people are like, look, I just want to know what works. Nerd out, um, nerd so out. So if you don't want the science, tune out for the next one minute. Um, <laughs> so essentially the three pathways. One is kind of like a mobile phone where the microbes actually sense you know, um, something's going on and they activate this mobile phone up what we call the vagus nerve into the brain and tell the brain that something's going on. So that's the first one, mobile phone. Second one is via the postal service, essentially, where the bacteria actually produce chemicals and that gets into our blood. Some of them can pass that blood-brain barrier and talk to our brain that way. And then the third one is via the immune system, kind of like an alarm system. And that's because 70% of our immune system lives in the gut. So when the microbes sense something's going on, they activate the immune system. The immune system produces inflammatory markers, and that also alerts the brain. So it's really those three ways, the mechanisms of why we're starting to see targeting the gut for mental health, you know, can have these really real and measurable impacts. See, that's just it. See, it's that, that, that connection. It's super, super, super strong. Um, I want to go back to what it was you were saying about supplements. Uh, there's, there is a good portion of the audience in full disclosure who would prefer to, um, get all of their sources through food. So if somebody was interested in, um, not necessarily going that supplemental route with the, with the, uh, algae oil, as you were talking about, what are some foods where they could get those omega threes, those longer chain, uh, ones that you were talking about? Yeah, well, we know the best source is oily fish. Um, so, you know, if you choose not to eat oily fish, uh, you know, you can get some sort, some types of the omega-3 um, from things like the walnuts, the chia seeds and the tofu, but you have to make quite a concerted effort to get them in. Um, we're now starting to see that there are some plant-based milks um, fortified with uh, plant-based omega-3, so you might be able to get some in there as well. Um, but it, it actually is quite quite a challenge to get in sufficient amounts. But I am all for you know food first and not supplements. Um, that's definitely my my philosophy as well. But it just can be if you're 100% plant-based, quite tricky just getting it in um, from plants unless you want to eat you know. 300 grams of tofu every day and, you know, a quarter of a cup of chia seeds and you know, 50 grams of uh, walnuts, which, you know, might get a bit boring <laughs> every day. As a lot of walnuts, but it's funny the, the the tofu, I was just talking to uh, a bodybuilder, a vegan bodybuilder who I used to work with uh, by the name of Melissa Busta. She's a fan of yours, by the way. Um, she was excited when I said that you were going to be on the show, um, but she was talking about just this insane amount of tofu that she would eat um, getting ready for competition. So I, I'm pretty sure she was, she was hitting her mark there. She was there, getting no that. Doubt. Yeah, <laughs> she's nope. getting her omega threes and <laughs> love it, love it. And then also, I mean, tofu is a great source of those phytoestrogens as well. Um, which I think there was a, quite a lot of myths thrown into the water about that causing breast cancer, or um, you know, you know, if you had breast cancer, making it worse. But actually, the studies have just been completely misinterpreted. They were based on animal studies, which we know very rarely translate to humans. And now we've got you know really robust evidence showing that things like soy products. Um, you know, the tofu, soybeans uh, actually, yeah, are linked with a reduction uh, in your risk of breast cancer as well as a relapse if you've already had breast cancer. 
Absolutely. Again, it's it's all like fascinating stuff. We're going to do our, our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign again this October. And uh, we have Dr. Christy Funk come on and the science that she spills about all of this and, and how important your diet and lifestyle are in mitigating your risk for uh, breast cancer. It's just astounding. The number of cases that she says uh, are preventable. Um so speaking of preventing things, in order to prevent becoming sick, you need to have a really, really, really strong immune system. Um, I can't let you go without talking about that gut immune access. Um, how important is a healthy gut to having a healthy immune system? Yeah, look, they go hand in hand. Like I highlighted, 70% of our immune system lives in our gut. Um, and, you know, we certainly see it all the time, not only in my clinical practice, but also the research that backs it up, that people who've got a healthier gut and therefore a gut microbiome have more resilient immune systems. And it's played out with COVID-19 as well, where, uh, you know, people who had better gut health, if they did get COVID-19, they were much less likely to become unwell with it. So be asymptomatic. Uh, and again, you know, I've seen it with with a lot of my clients and even my own family where we all had COVID, um, but we actually didn't know that we had had it. Um, so, yeah, you know, we see that nourishing those gut microbes because they are producing the chemicals which we know strengthen that immune system and help the immune system actually have really good regulation. In fact, we know uh, you know, any parents out there, the first thousand days of a baby's life is really, really important for their immune to develop right. And that is actually taught, that development is taught by our gut microbes, um, where the microbes teach our immune system what to react to and what it shouldn't react to. And actually, we're thinking the well, the back of this um, hygiene hypothesis, I think a lot of people have heard that we're being too clean and therefore um reducing down the exposure of our kids to microbes and different microbes has resulted in them having a more um, or a less diverse microbiota and therefore their immune system hasn't been trained very efficiently. As a result, high risk of food allergies and other allergies and things like asthma, etc. Uh, so it is actually quite important those first thousand days of life and, uh, you know, to try expose bub uh, in a safe way um, to, to, you know, healthy microbes or as possible. So I've got a little boy, he's 16 months. Um, and, you know, we really were, well, we've got a puppy, which helps actually. The science has shown that kids who grow up with a puppy are much lower risk of, of getting things like uh, food allergies as well as asthma, um, as well as being uh, obese in, in older, over older years. So it's, it's quite interesting research coming out uh, where the, the, obviously having a dog, the kids typical, the babies typically get exposed to more microbes that way. Um, obviously, things like breastfeeding, where you can, I know firsthand, it's really challenging, but it does contain um, not only prebiotics, which feed the gut bacteria like a fertilizer, but also a range of different probiotics, which help um, the bub's gut to, to kind of uh, grow and evolve and become really diverse to teach their immune system. And I mean, I could go on, uh, but I won't. <laughs> no, I, I'm wondering though, you know, because I don't think that for a lot of new mothers, that's necessarily something that they're taught, they're aware of or anything like that. So if you have grown up and you you kind of have this suboptimal immune system, um, by changing your diet and um, really kind of eliminating those foods like we were talking about, the red, the processed meat, you change your diet, how much can you still improve your immune system if you didn't have those really well-developed immune responses in those first thousand days of life? Yeah, look, you can absolutely have measurable impacts on your immune strength uh, via, you know, changing your diet. And, you know, don't forget those other three pillars that we spoke about, also really important for our gut and therefore immune health. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to lie and say you can get as good immune, you know, regulation if, if you'd had kind of that exposure younger because it's kind of programmed in. Um, but I still want people to, you know, feel empowered and know that you can still, you know, improve your immune system by several fold via, um, you know, even if you haven't had that sort of upbringing, you know, via uh, diet and lifestyle, you know, as adults. Um, but yeah, we do think that programming, particularly things like eczema, for example, does happen when we're young. I'm curious about um, dairy and what role that may play in suppressing the immune system. What do you know about that? Is that as villainous as meat? Yeah. So, I mean, 
It's a, it's an interesting topic. And I think, you know, fermented dairy, where the microorganisms have actually broken down some of the, the milk sugars and produced organic acids, actually, there is some studies to suggest that might have some, some health benefits to it. Um, in terms of, of dairy, like skim milk, actually, that has been in some studies associated with things like more acne. So, if, you know, not great for the skin and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, if anyone out there is consuming dairy, uh, you know, because it's always everyone's, you know, personal choice, I would say try have your fermented dairy um, because we think that some of them contain the organic acids like kefir, for example. And last question here, and, and I'll let you run because I know I'm sure you've got like 18 million other things to do releasing this book. Um, what, what do we know about somebody who is completely 100% eating a plant-based diet, uh, how their immune system, how their gut health is compared to somebody who's vegetarian and is still eating things like dairy, still uh, eating things like eggs? It, do the completely plant-based group, does that group have a leg up on vegetarian? You know, it's an interesting one. Um, and I think what we're finding actually in these studies, it comes down to actually what type of vegan and what type of vegetarian they are. Because, you know, I talk about this in the book where there is this these healthy plant-based dietary index, which is used in a lot of our clinical trials to kind of categorize what a healthy plant is and uh, unhealthy plant is. And they've actually shown that um, just eating more plants, if they're ultra processed, actually increases your risk of, of chronic conditions, just like, you know, processed animal foods, for example. Um, so actually what the, the key predictor is, is having the whole versions of food. So I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the whole grains, not the white bread, um, having, you know, sweetening your food, which I've done in all the books, sweetening them with whole fruit like bananas and dates and not adding refined sugars even like coconut sugar is still a refined sugar it doesn't have fiber that helps kind of that blood sugar regulation so actually it's you know and i actually give a case study of someone in the book who um who was vegan um and you know she had a very junk food diet so like potato chips pizza all vegan foods no animal but it wasn't the right source so what we did is change the types of vegan foods that she was having her skin cleared up you know she got her weight to a happy weight mental health improved and all that sort of stuff so i think the key principle is whole plants um don't fall victim to this kind of vegan junk food diet yeah, and how concerned are you uh, with we we are seeing this explosion of vegan options, but a lot of them absolutely do not qualify as health food whatsoever. There are a lot of the ultra processed foods you were talking about. How concerned are you as our our diets, the consumer trends shift over toward plant based? that it's not going to be the healthiest plant-based diet and maybe then the benefits of the health benefits of a plant-based diet, that messaging will be lost because people are still eating those ultra processed foods, even though they are vegan. Yeah, very much so. And it kind of does a disservice to plants, right? Because then people go vegan, but with this junk food and they go, Oh, I don't feel better. Actually I'm, I'm putting on weight or my skin's bad. My mental health's not in a good place. My hormones are all over the place. Um, and I'm like, yeah, but that's not because you're getting the full beauty and benefit of plants. And actually, one of the research studies we're currently doing at King's um, is looking at the potentially negative impact of certain types of foods, uh, sorry, foods, certain types of additives that are actually found in like 30% of, of foods, a lot of them which are plant-based alternatives, like a lot of these plant-based alternate um, milks, for example, um, you know, you know, we are finding that sometimes when we're substituting bits, the additives chucked in are huge. Um, and although a lot of the additives have been re uh, generally regarded as safe, safe, they were tested pre our understanding of our gut microbiome. So that's actually what we're redoing, retesting the safety, a lot of them based on our microbe. Uh, and like I highlighted, there's some pilot studies and we're doing the first, you know, really large clinical trial on it. Um, looking at a category called food um, emulsifiers. So things like um, carboxymethylcellulose, carrageenan, P80, et cetera. 
I'm going to keep my eye out for that study. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, so uh, yeah, let me let me know how that one is progressing. Um, I would love to have you back to talk more about that one. Um, but right now, I would encourage everybody to click the link in the episode notes or in the show description. Go out to your local book retailer, pick up How to Eat More Plants. I mean, we're talking about just getting to 30 every single week. And as we've heard here today, it's not really all that difficult. Dr. Megan Rossi, thank you so very much for your time. I am just enthralled with your passion and your enthusiasm and your knowledge. This has been an absolute treat for me. It's been an absolute pleasure just to, you know, spread the message. But it sounds like your listeners are very educated. It's just about those practical elements, isn't it? And getting really excited that you can take control of your life and how you feel inside and out. If you're a regular exam roomie, you know that we talk a lot about gut health on the show. And there are still plenty more episodes all about this to come in the future. And you might be saying, well, of all the things to talk about, and there is a lot to talk about, why do you keep talking about the gut? And that is a fair question. But here is the answer. It's because there is a major need for these conversations. Check this out. The global digestive health product market is expected to reach nearly $90 billion by the year 2030. Researchers at Grandview Research who came up with that figure say the explosion is due to a number of different factors. Things like rising geriatric populations, so a lot of us are getting older. And then there are increasing healthcare costs and changing lifestyles and innovation in formulations of digestive health products, which is just a fancy way for saying drugs. But specific to lifestyle, here's also what they concluded for this boom. The consumption of fast food and packaged food, sedentary lifestyles, desk-bound jobs, and hectic work schedules in developed economies of North America have contributed to digestive problems, leading to high consumption of digestive health products. As such, the regions account for 33% of the total market share in 2021. So that's one out of every three worldwide global dollars spent right here in North America. You think about our lifestyle and the standard American diet, just as they said, no surprise, right? But if you are someone who is able to eat those 30 plants per week, those 30 different plants per week, like Dr. Rossi was talking about, you probably won't be among those throwing your dollars into that $90 billion bucket. That is, unless you want to look at things like green kale and purple carrots and red apples and brown rice, orange peppers, yellow peppers, yellow bananas, and blue berries. Looking at them, looking at that rainbow that's on your plate, looking at all of that like medicine, then maybe those dollars are in fact going into the bucket. But I don't think that's what this research had in mind. And certainly when it comes to those delicious foods, you don't need a spoonful of sugar to make that medicine go down, my friend. They are plenty sweet enough. Now, we know that a healthy gut also boosts your immune function. But an unhealthy gut? We're talking about not just suppressing your immune system, we're talking about something that can be really painful. Check this. Researchers in Sweden studied 73,000 adults in 33 different countries representing six different continents. They found that nearly 40% of all adults suffer from a functional gastrointestinal disorder. Now, you might be asking, what is a functional gastrointestinal disorder? That is another good question. And that is a chronic disorder in the digestive tract. We're talking about the ones that are not much fun whatsoever. Things like heartburn and acid reflux or chronic constipation and bloating and irritable bowel syndrome. We're talking about real quality of life suppressors here. But interestingly, the same research found that women, more than men, are suffering from these chronic conditions. 49% of women in fact, met the diagnostic criteria of at least one 
functional gastrointestinal disorder, and that is compared to 37% of men. But there is a caveat there, and that is respondents were less likely to report all of their symptoms or how severe they were during in-person interviews as opposed to those who submitted their answers anonymously online. So yeah, when you're talking about those kinds of things, especially things below the belt, it can be embarrassing, but these are still important conversations to be having. And the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, we're all adults here. We're all adults. And you certainly are not the only person in the world to be suffering from these unwanted, embarrassing symptoms. You are far from the only person. But that diversity of plants in your diet, 30 different ones every week, getting in something from each of Dr. Rossi's Super 6, hopefully, that then can be the prescription to turn your fortunes around, your gut health fortunes around, and boost that immune system, get that better night's sleep, and even improve your mental health alleviate some of those embarrassing symptoms, if not all of them. These are all good things, just by eating a diversity of plants. If you haven't already subscribed to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee, what are you waiting for, my friend? Please go ahead and do that on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and pay it forward by sharing it with someone in your life. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Megan Rossi for helping to raise our health IQs and teaching us how to eat more plants. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Oh,